You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson, I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me, not in his own studio this time, but actually standing next to me, next to a wooden crate at the Smart Energy Conference in Sydney is David Leach from ITK. How are you David? Giles, I'm very well. I trust all our listeners are well and isn't it nice to be doing a live outside broadcast for the first time? I'm almost expecting the footy teams to run onto the field, but instead we're here at Smart Energy. Well, that's exactly right. Look, I'm not too sure what this um, what this wooden crate's about, but um, anyway, it's, um, it's pretty interesting. We're surrounded by the wooden crates, but um, we can hear the conference in the distance. Look, David, this has been a pretty interesting conference. It's been the first time in more than a year that all the industry has gotten together. Um, so everyone's been very happy to catch up with each other. Geez, a lot's happened in the, lots, lots changed in the last year, hasn't it? Well, a lot has changed. But first of all, I think it's hats off uh, to the organisers of the Smart Energy Conference, um, uh, John Grimes and uh, Steve Bloom, I guess, as chair of the uh, Smart Energy Group. Yes, I'd like to put in a word for Wayne Smith too and, yes. and his team. So, yeah. It's a very well organised uh, conference and had a fantastic lineup of speakers and uh, Steve was only telling me that they had uh, 3,000 people through the doors uh, on the first day of the conference which is pretty darn good and shows I think the quality of the speakers and even that Angus Taylor sent in, a, uh, sent in his sent his in by video shows that... <laughs> by, the, by time capsule actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure the message would change if it was delivered in another 20 years but anyway um, uh, shows the maturity of the industry and how established mm. And mainstream it's actually become. Uh, yeah, as we'll probably talk about, but we had Kerry Schott uh, here, we had uh, most of the state ministers, and as I say, Angus Taylor, uh, representatives from AEMO, a uh, lot, lot, lot of serious hitters. No, it was actually really good, and it was good to see the state ministers. Uh, Matthew Keane was here in person, I mean, it is his home state, so that you'd expect, and we heard um, Bill from Bill Johnson from WA, Lily D'Ambrosio in Victoria, and uh, Shane Rattenbury in, uh, from the ACT. But I was particularly impressed with Keen speech actually. Um, look, he is very good at speaking. And I don't know, was it you who mentioned at the time that um, um, about about Matt Keane actually sort of, you know, a minister actually coming out and saying this rather than just talking vaguely about it? Well, we, look, we also had Malcolm Turnbull, who of course got uh, most of the mainstream medium turns. That's, that's, sorry, yes, sorry listeners, that's, I just tripped up there because I was just, I, I had a bit of a mental fog. I'm pretty sure it was you just sort of saying, well, the difference between Malcolm Turnbull and, and, and Matt Keane was that they're both saying the same message, but Matt's actually saying it while he's in a ministerial yes, position. Yes, and, and for Matt, it's, it's, the outcome is wonderful, but what, in my opinion, it's a triumph of politics, of being able to build the political consensus to get this policy through with relatively little opposition. But it's more than a triumph of politics. It's a triumph of bringing the bureaucracy, uh, the executive, along with you, as well as, as well as the leaders, because for me, one of the standout presentations was the one on renewable energy zones. Uh, uh, and uh, that had a couple of great uh, uh, sessions in it. One was on industrial uh, precincts from Simon Holmes at Court, and, and, you know, particularly in the Hunter, where we could maybe put the aluminium uh, and fertiliser uh, and hydrogen and renewable energy all together to, to create a big industry. 
But uh, Amy Keane talking about the New South Wales renewable energy zones and how she went out on a bicycle tour of the Arana zone, you know, to, 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 to really get the vibe of how the community are thinking about it. It's this idea of social licence which has become such a big deal in doing business these days. And by being open in the way they're approaching this and consultative in, the, in best practice and uh, putting the local communities at the centre of it and making sure that there's, they're going to get you know, a good supply of electricity in the actual renewable energy zone. So it, it, that's the way you do things. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And Kerry Short was actually making an interesting point too about renewable energy zones and just that social licence thing, she was very important. So I think the solar industry can learn a lot from the wind industry about how it managed its issues. And I think certainly the transmission industry is going to have to learn a lot from both because that's also going to be a major issue um, as we go forward. So. Um, Look, I managed to do a couple of recordings while I was here, and look, one of the first ones I did was from Danny Kennedy. That people may remember, he was actually the former head of Greenpeace International. He went to play a very significant role in the in California, and now runs the California Clean Energy Fund. And let's actually um, let's have a listen to what Danny has to say. I'm catching up with Danny Kennedy at the Smart Energy Council um, conference. Danny, it's great to catch up again. It's Good been a to while. See you. Yeah, yeah great it to is. Be here. I think last time when we saw each other, we we're having um, having a meal at the uh, Bangalore Hotel. I think it was. That's right. <laughs> it's beautiful. You're now heading the California Clean Energy Fund, which I think's got a new name now. What's it? What's it called? Well, we've broadened our scope from out uh, from just focusing on California to New York and also other countries, markets that matter, bringing funds and accelerators into India, China. Indonesia, Thailand, Philippines. So that's called New Energy Nexus. So okay. we run um, teams in all those places, and Uganda, I should mention. Right. But uh, basically the same idea, an ecosystem of money and training for startup founders to get faster, further, better. Yeah. Give us a bit of a sense of what's happening in California now. And it must be fairly buoyant with Joe Biden sure. in the White House, um, no more Trump, and a lot of money being thrown at clean energy in the transition. Yeah, it certainly feels like springtime yep. in America. <laughs> COVID's sort of passing too, we hope, you know, mm -hmm. the, the vaccinations rolling out. But, um, you know, California as a state just hit 94%. You might have seen that news mm. in terms of renewables one day last two weeks ago now. Uh, wow. and, you know, that's pretty impressive for the yes. fifth largest economy in the world. You know, yeah. we regularly do 70% on a given Sunday, but, um, to do that in the middle of the week uh, means it can be done again and again and then 365 days of the year, which is the law by 2045. But I'll be honest, I think, you know, now we're being pushed by Biden et al as to how much faster we can go and, and New York and other states are sort of bringing forward that 100% mandate. Um, and really it's now about, as it is in Australia, you know, it's not 100% of demand, it's going to be four, five, six, seven hundred percent mm. of demand that we'll actually generate with renewables. Which is a happy outcome for the grid in the end. That's right. And, yeah. and for all of us, um, but also for industry and new uh, innovative sectors that are going to come up around it. So in California, we do a lot around lithium, for example, now looking at a reshoring of the battery supply chain across America, which again is a sort of Biden initiative to make batteries in America again. Um, and that will probably be rooted in Southern California down near the Mexican border at a place called the Salton Sea. A lot of great stuff happening, um, mm. very buoyant, you know, uh, old friend Jigga Shah's in the loan program office of the Department of Energy talking about giving away, well not giving away, but investing <laughs> tens of billions of dollars, uh, <laughs> doing it the right way. Um, so yeah, it's, it's good times. We've done about a hundred startups pre-prototyping California in the last four years and plan to do a hundred in the next three. So we're trying to 
accelerate mm. our own craft. And when you come to Australia and you look at what's going on here, I mean, it seems to me that um, Australia in so many ways, or in some ways, is leading the world in sort of, you know, the uptake of rooftop solar and I guess the amount of wind and solar that's being put into the grid and the fact that we've got coal generators exiting and we're actually um, decarbonising the grid at a reasonably rapid rate. But in so many other ways, we're, we're behind the rest of the world because of the lack of federal policy and things like that. So. What's your observation? Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of the best of times, worst of times, crazy stuff. But certainly your postcard from the future is how I talk about Australia overseas. Mm. Um, wonderful penetration of the rooftop space and, and how that's affecting DERs more broadly and battery uptake and, and the, the derms and all the cool companies that have come up to service that grid and AMO's digitization agenda. Mm. All stuff that the rest of the world is behind, truly. Mm. Um, but then you're completely laggardly on EV adoption and, and other things. Mm. So, um, you know, sort of success despite and in spite of the politicians, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, but good on the entrepreneurs of Australia for making it happen and the consumers for demanding yeah. it and choosing it. I think Australia's got a huge opportunity to sell those smarts to the rest of the world, but less the states, you know, I wouldn't encourage that as much as Indonesia. I mean, mm. you know, you might have seen just last weekend, the Indonesian government finally sort of broke on their rhetoric from, you know, it's a coal-based future to, okay, okay, we recognize we're gonna to have to do some of this stuff and probably by 2023, that's all we'll do. Yep. That's 300 million people just yes. north of here yeah. that need microgrids and distributed energy resources and grid management and guess what? Hey, I got an idea. <laughs> Sell some services and, and yes. know-how and kit to yeah. our friends just north. Yeah. I, I would suggest that and, and a landing pad um, is open to you at New Energy Nexus. We've got offices in Singapore, a small fund to invest in Indonesia, the Philippines, Thailand. Vietnam, um, you know, really keen to just support the uh, kind of cross-fertilization of all these key markets yeah. that matter. And yeah. Australia could do great with that. Yeah, and I will. Fantastic stuff. Danny, thanks for joining us. And that was Danny Kennedy from the California Clean Energy Fund. David, I guess the message there is that Australia must seize the opportunities. There's sort of, you know, people, there's a lot of investment out there. They're looking for opportunities. Australia really has to seize it. And it was a similar message that came in another interview I did with Tim Buckley from the Institute of um, Energy and economic financial analysis it might be the other way around. 20, pe 20 people, Tim's got working for him here in Australia, but keep going. No, no, it's, it's, it's fantastic. No, it's, I remember actually, IEFA grew at about the same time as, um, as Renew Economy nearly a decade ago, and, um, and it's, it's grown into a very important and very influential uh, think tank. So um, let's have a listen to what Tim had to say. Uh, Tim Buckley from the from IEFA, the Institute of Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. Have I got that right, Tim? You have. Oh, fantastic! Look, we've just had an interesting session where you've been speaking um, on a talking about the export opportunities for Australia. We heard from Sun Cable that massive 14 gigawatt project and 33 gigawatt hours of battery storage, possibly going to Singapore. Um, we talked about some of the other export opportunities. We've been hearing about hydrogen quite a lot. But it's also interesting just talking about the Australian opportunity. So this is not just about exporting power or electricity or energy overseas, it's also making so much surplus energy that we actually create this massive manufacturing opportunity in Australia and decarbonise at the same time. Tell us more about that. Yeah, Simon Holmes Accord talked about it. The, the idea of industrial demand precincts. So before we work out and before we even get the engineering on how to transport liquid hydrogen to Japan, right, at 
double the negative temperature of LNG. There is not a ship in the world that can do that. That's a decade away. We have opportunities right now to learn by doing at massive world scale by decarbonising our heavy industry in Australia. So the players like Tomago from being, go from being our arch enemy five years ago to in fact the enabler of the decarbonisation of, of the grid. And as we heard from Dr Schott yesterday, getting to 75% is actually really easy. It's the last 25% that is difficult and that's where flexible industry buying in and rewarded for decarbonising becomes a key enabler and that probably crosses the political divide because then all of a sudden the Liberal National Party has to talk about jobs, they have to talk about reindustrialisation, take advantage of COVID, we've learnt that supply chains are key, let's decarbonise our manufacturing, I would be starting with replacing imports of ammonia, not worrying about exporting green mm. ammonia to Japan, let's stop the imports of ammonia and decarbonise our, our existing ammonia nitrate manufacturing facilities, particularly up in Maurer, central Queensland, for the explosives for the coal mining exports. Yeah. But and we're talking about billions of dollars. I mean, you know, we're talking about sort of having tens and tens of billions of dollars of extra industry in Australia. And it's interesting what you talk about there because we're talking about not just seizing the opportunity, but was what was also discussed this afternoon was the fact of avoiding catastrophe because there's other economies decarbonised and there's quite open talk now about um, uh, about border taxes. So you've got all the industry in Europe, they're basically dealing with a, a real or a shadow carbon price of around $100 a megawatt, uh, $100 a tonne and they're just thinking well we want to. No, we don't want to be laid victim to this, so we, we should impose this on other ones, on, on other countries. Correct. I mean, that's where the thinking from players like Heidelberg Cement. For the last ten years, they've tried to undermine the European Carbon um, ETS. Now they've accepted. It's inevitable. It's there. It's growing. It's growing every month, and it is going to 100, mm. as you said. And uh, that's exactly what the Norwegian uh, ambassador said today as well. It's going to 100. So therefore, carbon capture and storage in the North Sea works. Because my response is, yeah, but it'll never work here because we don't have a price signal. Hmm. They do. They've got a price signal of 50 euros today, going to 100. And so therefore, Equinor is the biggest developer of blue hydrogen potentially in the world, it's probably the only blue hydrogen project that will get off the ground because they've got the underpinning that we don't have, which is a carbon price. Well, it was interesting, I think in the first session today in the hydrogen thing, and look, there's been a whole room, basically, two days of hydrogen talk and lots of, lots of different projects and things like that, but one of the fascinating things that emerged this morning was the German uh, representative talking about the appetite for green hydrogen, and then all the Australian agencies, such as Arena and other ones, were saying, well, we're, do we're supporting hydrogen projects, but some of them are blue and some of them are brown, and the guy was just going, well, <laughs> sorry guys, but the market's for green hydrogen. We, you know, Australia seems to be sort of chasing this fossil fuel hydrogen um, for no good reason or purpose. Yeah, I mean, I won't try and justify it. At the end of the day, my view is blue hydrogen is a myth. It is going to be an absolute, like, as common as flying pigs everywhere <laughs> except in Europe. And mm. uh, is the idea that Australia is going to ride that one anywhere, absolutely yeah. not. But we do have a massive fossil fuel industry. There is a lot of learning by doing. The government's going to subsidise it all, as we've just heard from Marina. But at the end of the day, that's an important first step. Let's do something. We've mm. got to start. But the massive multi-billion dollar opportunity is um, 
for export to green hydrogen, there is no way Japan or Korea, who have just committed to net zero, can use mythical blue hydrogen to deliver on net zero. Mm. But um, in the meantime, the bigger opportunity, I mean, one of the numbers that came out yesterday that sticks in my mind, someone put up a slide saying we import $29 billion of oil and diesel every year. So we could replace high emissions, expensive imported oil imports with domestic renewable energy by adopting a really fast accelerated deployment of EVs. So, I mean, you've been ahead what of the great, curve. What a great idea. Who would have thought of that? Got driven, <laughs> yep. Um, but it's now become an economic reality. That's how we drive 29 billion a year of, of um, import replacement. And so rather than stuffing around with this road tax that um, Lily's colleagues in Victoria have just done. I mean, how dumb. She's she's massively offset at why by this um, subsidy of upfront. Mm. But at the end of the day, it wasn't her policy. One of her colleagues must have snuck her in while she was out. It was Treasury, I think. It was Treasury. treasury. Yes. It's just stupid. But yeah. at the end of the day, maybe in five years' time. But in the meantime, what we should have been talking about was the $29 billion a year of annual opportunity. And the federal government's now absolutely stuck because two of the last four refineries are closing. Well, Tim, riddle me this then. If it's so damn obvious, then why aren't they doing it? Idiocy and ideology. There's no other two words for it. Murdoch, obviously our favourite friend, um, and just the absolute power of APR in Australia is, in my view, it's a massive undermining of democracy. They, If you think about it, I mean, Shell has a $51 billion PRT rebate on their balance sheet for Australia. $51 billion that they will never pay to the Australian government for use of offshore LNG in Australia. You better just spell that out for us. So. Uh, the Petroleum Rent Resources Tax, so it's paid, it's a royalty that supposedly goes to the federal government on oil and gas from the offshore. So if it's onshore, it goes to the state. If it's offshore, it goes to the federal government. But. Twelve years ago, the ALP, Martin Ferguson, did a deal which meant that effectively players like Shell will never pay royalties on any LNG deal, any LNG project that they have developed in this country. Shell's annual report says they will not pay rent resources royalties for the next 20, 30, 40 years. So they're just getting basically $51 billion of our money that, um, or yes, we're, we're using, keeping it, yes. Correct. They're using Australian public resources for tax haven based foreign gain and the only person that's benefiting and it's not Shell because Shell's share price is in the shit just like Exxon's is they're going down so it's not that shareholders are benefiting Martin Ferguson being paid what is it $900,000 a year now that says to me both sides of politics are being corrupted by the fossil fuel vested interest the lobbying power of players like Apia are destroying Australia's democracy now, I'm saying that I know they can sue me they probably will but at the end of the day they are destroying our democracy and Murdoch's reinforcing it and so politics is ridiculous so that we can't even talk sensible yeah. economics and finance well, but, but let me finish on a positive yes Larry Fink makes me look conservative Larry Fink now talks about decarbonisation investment opportunities as the biggest opportunity in the world for BlackRock in BlackRock's history BlackRock for all of your listeners nine trillion dollars of assets he makes ScoMo look minor and irrelevant in the world Larry Fink is the most powerful man in the world and he's telling every CEO, decarbonise at an aggressive speed. He's already called out AGL, he's already called out Kepco. He's going to be calling out every fossil fuel company, every major emitter in the world to decarbonise. That's BlackRock in our side, our tent. So we've won. Well, hooray. Well, that's a nice positive note. And um, before we go and get our lawyers, I'll better say goodbye. Tim, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Charles.
And that was Tim Buckley from IEFA. Um, David, yes, um, so, so many opportunities in Australia. It's really interesting about the idea of bringing ammonia back on shore rather than importing it, and rather than just sort of exporting all our hydrogen opportunity, think about it as an export, about actually creating industry in Australia. And I think this is a point that you've actually made previously. Well, yes, and I just wanted to also finish on the uh, Arana Renewable Energy Zone. That's the first one in New South Wales where uh, uh, Ms Hicks uh, talked about the possibility of actually putting five gigawatts of uh, new renewable yes. supply. I'm going to inter- I'm gonna have to interrupt you there because yeah, Chloe Hicks, it wasn't um, Amy Keane as you said originally, so Chloe Hicks. Was Chloe, who was on the bicycle, Chloe or Amy? Chloe Hicks, is Miss, Miss, Miss Chloe Hicks as far as I know. It was Chloe Hicks on the bicycle, there you go. Apologies to both, but there you go. Continue on. Uh, so uh, that that's, just shows the scale. And then uh, also we had Monique Miller from the CEFC pointing out that there's just an absolute flood of money, which I think you and I know, uh, around the world that wants to find the investment opportunities. So it, there is great opportunities uh, for Australia. In terms of ammonia, uh, I think the expert in Australia is is the CWP group. That's the that's the group that has the um, hub in West Australia that wants to build uh, essentially a hundred terawatt hours, so about equal to half of the NEM can, uh, annual consumption uh, in, in in a very over twenty billion dollar project. And it has decided uh, it started out it was going to move electricity on a transmission line to Indonesia. Uh, and then it switched over to thinking about hydrogen, but now it's switched from hydrogen to ammonia exports. And basically the idea would be to ship ammonia to Japan to replace about half the coal in, you know, uh, in Japan's coal generators. And so that's not going to reduce Japan's emissions to zero, but it's, gonna, it's a pretty good start. It's a pretty good start. It was interesting in the start of the hydrogen conference, actually, the uh, German representative sort of talking about, as I discussed actually with Tim, um, <laughs> sort of saying, you know, we want green hydrogen and um, all the Australian agency saying, oh, well, we're making green hydrogen, but we're also funding blue hydrogen and brown hydrogen. You're just going, guys, I don't think you quite understand the market. But anyway, um, look, uh, let's probably get back to a little bit of um, Australian politics. Um, look, we saw Keith Pitt's extraordinary intervention. I don't know what I actually want to sort of do, but it's just so frustrating to hear a minister of the Crown and an electrical engineer as well, just sort of refusing to say whether battery storage is dispatchable or not. I just thought that was perfectly ridiculous. But Angus Taylor is moving forward with his preferred gas generator in Curry Curry, despite the fact that Energy Australia is now building its own plant at Tallawarra. Um, the interesting thing with Curry Curry is it's going to burn on diesel for the first six months because it hasn't got to, if it gets built, but it's going to burn on diesel for the first six months because there's no proper gas connection. Look, uh, it, notwithstanding that AGL had a proposal to build a gas generator in a similar area, it's Newcastle's not actually an obvious place to build gas generation uh, because the, it's right at the end of the current gas supply chain. Uh, at the moment and uh, I think we can look at the difference between the Talawara project funded by the private sector Energy Australia which required essentially an 80 million dollar subsidy from the New South Wales government uh, dressed up as a, as a hydrogen sort of thing to actually get the go-ahead even though that was being built on the site of an existing gas, gas generator plant uh, and the plants have been developed for years so it's bound to be cheaper uh, than a brand new plant, mm. which doesn't have any gas infrastructure, and we can compare that with the uh, with the plant that Snowy's proposing to build, which could only be built because essentially the federal government's building it. Now, there's good and bad things to say about Snowy, uh, and I said fairly regularly, but uh, I mean, 
I, I doubt that this project would be all that commercial, uh, or obviously commercial on its own merits. But if you're snowy and you've got a very big share of the uh, peak market, you know, uh, yeah. through its high, then it's a chance to kind of use federal money to, to essentially buy up uh, control of the market without having to worry about competition from the private sector. And that's exactly what a lot of people have been telling me in the past, actually. Yeah, that's all that, that caps market. They've got a large share of it now and by building this um, gas stroke diesel plant, then they can lock it up even further. So not great for competition, really. Now, another thing we heard from the people from the solar side of things, and this conference didn't have a lot of wind was about the problems in South Australia with the South Australian households just being switched off uh, without any consultation, without any uh, social licence uh, because of these uh, issues with, in South Australia with system security and minimum demand. Now it's true those issues exist and that's, uh, uh, but in the end the thing that's missing from all of the work, we heard AEMO talk about the different streams of work that they're doing and one of them is uh, like an engineering study to mm. talk about but the trouble is, and it's the same with the Energy Security Board, that it's all this uh, muddle through approach. Now muddle through is fine as a way of uh, doing things. It's a well proven, actually successful thing as we discussed last time, Giles, <laughs> that you and I are well versed in the what. Well, we muddle through, yes, definitely. <laughs> but the other way of doing it, uh, that's also well accepted, is to start with your end goal and then work back with a gaps analysis. What do you need to achieve your end goal? And I think what's missing in the security side of things more than anywhere else is what, how would we manage you know, inertia or virtual inertia and current and system strength in a world where there wasn't any cold or gas generation. I think the academic uh, groups and AEMO and CSIRO have all let us down in that regard because they haven't done the work to actually have a departure point, you know. Mm. Uh, we don't know what the end game is, and as a result, we keep building system, uh, synchronous condensers and saying you've got to have this much synchronous generation running because no one's got any, they haven't done the work yet mm. to show how to do it differently. Yeah. Look, another interesting theme that came up, and particularly in the first day, and this idea about um, um, solar and how it's kind of eating its own lunch in a way, and this is mostly rooftop solar. Look, it's good news in one way, it just basically means that all the households and the consumers and the businesses have put solar on the roof are really having an impact on the market and and the, the first and biggest victim has been coal-fired generation but the next victim has actually been large-scale solar plants and um, both you and some other analysts came up and just were pointing out the problems um, that that is uh, putting to many of the people who want to develop solar farms what's the solution David is it just simply more storage or spilling or hydrogen or what uh, how do we get around that because well I think we should develop more wind most of the studies that I've seen so far depending on what cost you want to put in show that the low cost solution for Australia generally has a lot of wind in it mm. whereas everyone wants to talk about the falling cost of solar all the time that's you know uh, and they don't people don't like to talk about wind because it's not a wind's not a game for cowboys so much you've actually got to have a few hundred you know <laughs> You know what I mean? You've got to be a serious player to get into wind and, and do all the environmental stuff. Leaving that aside, uh, the answer is that um, in the end, the low prices in the middle of the day will end up setting the prices in the evening. Because if, it's, if you're a battery and you're, and you're charging at zero, and you need, say, a $70 spread between your buy cost and your sell price, that to cover your cost of your battery, then that means if you buy at zero, you can sell at 70 in the evening, and that sets the price of electricity at that time. And if you buy at minus 70, you can sell at zero in the evening. Well, I don't think minus 70, but, <laughs> but so in the end, the fact that the rooftop solar is going to 
push prices down to zero in the middle of the day from the system's point of view, and even from the people who are buying electricity in the evening, that's not a bad thing. That's, well, that's actually, yes, so it's actually a good thing, yes. It, 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 you know, it can be a good thing if yes, managed properly. You just need to think, do a lot of thinking about yeah. these things. Now, the other thing, theme to emerge from the conference that a lot of pre presenters have made is this point, and it goes to the gas thing, is that we, we are going to need something beyond batteries in this highly renewable world, and we're not quite sure what it's going to be yet. For those cold winter nights when there's not much renewable energy production for a couple of weeks on, on end, and you can't recharge your batteries, you know, as fast as you need to, what are we going to do then? That's the, that's the other sort of missing piece in the market. We can where switch on Angus Taylor's diesel generator. Yeah, we could switch on <laughs> Angus Taylor's diesel generator. <laughs> but what else, David? Well, we don't know. Maybe, maybe it's going to be ammonia-driven generators and those sorts of things. Maybe it's an aluminium smelter turning down uh, in part, uh, you know, which could deliver a thousand megawatts for a couple of weeks on end uh, uh, across the three or four smelters that we've got running in Australia. So there are plans, but but again, it's thinking needs to be done about this uh, over and beyond uh, the integrated system plan. Let, let's be honest, the integrated system plan uh, is a transmission plan in the end. Mm. It's a step-by-step -step transmission plan. It doesn't have an end goal in mind. It's not driven by a, a you know, central government objective. It's not driven with an end view. I, I think AEMO needs to... Re they did a study years ago where they looked at 100% renewables, uh, 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 but they didn't. I don't think they took that study very seriously. This time I think they need to do a serious study and work it out from all the angles. Well, certainly their fast change, uh, their step change plan gets, to, gets us to 90% their modelling, well it's just a scenario, I guess it's to 90% by 2040 and what they've been saying and what Kerry Schott's been saying, what other people have been saying is basically we're going even quicker than that. So that sort of assessment should be or probably will be forced upon us because we're now starting to talk about getting very close to 100% renewables, possibly by the mid-2030s. The biggest difficulty of course is getting that last five or ten percent and that's the uh, there's a lot of steps to go to have this uh, high penetration of renewables there's a lot of things that have to happen just yes. well over and beyond building the wind and the solar plants now we are actually despite what all everyone's optimism actually when you look at it there's a slowdown in the last few months and we can argue about the reasons for that slowdown but I suspect it's tied up with the New South Wales plan and just to be clear that the New South Wales plan uh, won't have its first projects sort of shovel ready before the end of next calendar year. Yes. So that's a lot of podcasts between now and then, Giles. Absolutely, yes. And just to sort of, um, just sort of em 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 embellish on that, um, a lot of people have been saying to, to, to us while we've been here is that this New South Wales plan is great, but because they're waiting for an auction and a system, they're basically everyone's sort of putting, putting a hold on their project decisions now because they're waiting to see how that unfolds. So it will be good in the end when it rolls out, but the inevitable result is that there's a bit of a hold up in the, in the meantime. And, but that's been true of just about any incentive plan that's ever actually been Thing, produced. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, things don't go in a straight line. No. Uh, uh, true love, the course of true love and all of that, Giles. <laughs> Not that I'm wanting to suggest anything here. Look, I think we've about, our listeners will start to wonder what we're on about in a minute. No, that's right. Look, I think we've probably covered enough time. It's probably time to wrap up. I can. Um, it's winding down outside there and away from these wooden crates. So, David, look, great to catch up. Great to be here in person. Um, congratulations once again to the Smart Energy Council for putting on this conference. Thanks also to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. And um, thanks, of course, to our listeners. It's been actually great getting your feedback. We've been wandering around the conference floor um, or sitting there working on our laptops and just a lot of people come up to us and said, look, really enjoy your podcast, um, really good, and we really appreciate that. And um, fantastic. So, David, 
back to our studios next week and um, enjoy the rest of the conference, or one hour of it. <laughs> I'll do that, Charles. Cheers again. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.